Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Our goal at the Henry Nouwen Society is to extend the rich spiritual legacy of Henry to audiences around the world. We invite you to share the daily meditations and these podcasts with your friends and family. Today, you're in for a real treat. Award-winning author Anne Lamott is with us. Anne has written 18 books, 15 are bestsellers. She's well-loved for her wit, her brave honesty, and her passion for truth. What great timing as we together all around the world face the storm of this pandemic. Anne, in the New York Times, you were dubbed the lefty guru of optimism. I want to know if hope is still working for you in the midst of COVID-19. Um, you know, mostly, uh, like everybody else, I'm, I'm, um, I'm just fine most of the time, and I know it will end, all evidence to the contrary. And, um, I, you know, some days are just too long, and I'm just too annoyed for words and, um, and impatient and crazy. And then it passes, and then um, uh, I'm very optimistic that this will turn into something absolutely amazing, because everything always does. And um, yeah, I, I'm sure you know I, I've I've just been telling everyone that it's it's been like a lazy Susan, where some days it lands on um, surrendered faithful, trusting, and and then it lands on rage <laughs> and apoplectic fury at the powers that be, and then it lands on, you know, re- reason, which is just to take care of everyone, you know, whoever else I can, and then I know God will take care of me, so, because he and I have a deal, so um, it, um, today I feel very surrendered, and there's really not much um, I can do about changing the reality, but I can change um, my inside reality to to a you know so I'm 66, the so 66 years of having been taken care of perfectly. So yeah, but you asked on the right day. If you'd asked a couple of days ago, I would have said, "Ha ha, optimist, the left wing guru of hope." Not really. <laughs> Well, I know I loved your book, Almost Everything. And I mean, it is about hope and it's wonderful. And I thought of all the people that I could talk to at this time, I wanted to talk to you. And I, I, I know so many are kind of following you in, on Facebook and in your, you know, whatever way they can kind of gain from you what you've got that I think what everybody loves so much is your honesty. And that rip-roaring honesty has done you well. It's well-laced with wit. But I also know that, uh, in a sense, you don't avoid or dance around the pain. It's very real, too. Uh-huh. Well, it is. I mean, it just makes you crazier to try to avoid it. And, or, pour, as Marianne Williamson said 30 years ago, to try, you know, just to try to pour pink, some pink paint over it. But uh, most of my pain and suffering comes from trying to avoid my pain and suffering. And also pain, suffering, and the extreme powerlessness that really is at the center of our lives. So um, if I'm just willing to stop and be where my feet and my butt are and notice how miserable or physically or, or psychologically uncomfortable I am, then I have a chance of... Um, of it of it being transformative and 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 asking God into that um, discomfort and, and and lostness and powerlessness and then I start to um, come back home you know because home is is uh, home is the truth of my spiritual identity which is I'm beloved and I'm accepted exactly as is this is a come as you are party. And um, and my resistance to the pain of of human life and the losses is what makes me edgy and rashy. I call it being crunchy. And so um, the way I always thought I was raised to believe that the way to comfort was to just deny, deny, deny that things just weren't perfect. And I've learned through 
my spiritual life and my recovery life that the way home is through it and in it. And, you know, I mean, I always have understood that Jesus isn't here with a magic wand to take away our pain, but to enter into it with us. And um, so that we have a brother sitting next to us um, being aware that it can be very, very hard here. You know, I love how you're so open in your own struggles and vulnerability. And you actually remind me of Henry Nouwen in this. When I read Henry, I say, me too, uh, as he describes his inner fears or his doubts about himself or his even, even his self-loathing, which he uh, I really yeah, gets to yeah. me. And, and I hear that in you. I mean, that's that's what I connect with in you. I find myself reading your books and going, me too, me too. Oh, she found words oh, for thank it. thank you. And it, it uncovers something that we've often tr- been trying to cover up and find that yeah. it's all right to say, that's yeah. how I really feel. That's what's really going on inside of me. Um, yeah, it's not only all right. It's that the secret is that everybody feels it. It's a, it's the human experience to be here to, um, in a lot of confusion. You know, no one got an owner's manual, and um, and to have been raised in such a way that you were compared to how everybody else seemed to be doing and everybody else was either on TV or in ads or (laughs) faking it in high school. And, um, you know, there's a famous saying in recovery, don't compare your insides to other people's outsides. And the truth is that when I share my insights with somebody who looks like they're basically having a perfect life, they say, me too also. They say, oh, my God, you know, that's yeah. exactly what it's like. But, you know, I, I just, you know, people are still putting makeup on, some of them. You know, when you have to stay six feet apart with the mask on, what's the point? <laughs> well, the point is that you were raised to get the appearance just right. And um, and when you knew that your, that your inside person was really full of doubt or judgment or hostility or self-loathing, Um, the message from the culture was, you know, correct it, get it together. And um, so, but once you're just sharing truth with someone else, everyone's just nodding and going, oh my God, I know, right? Yeah. So, like there's nothing you could tell me about your life or your inside world where I would feel, where I would recoil and go, oh my God, Karen, I can't believe that (laughs) a woman so devoted to spiritual, you know, blah, blah, blah. I would go, oh, I know. Welcome. As Vonnegut said, welcome to the monkey house. Uh, It's funny. I I think a lot of people have particularly appreciated how you, let me just read from something that's here, how you've written about families. and they, then there were our families of origin. Some of us grew up in the alternative universe of unhappy marriages, where we accepted as normal despair, desperate parental need, and bizarre, bizarre sights just short of a head on a stick. I mean, you talk about family. You you brought us into your family because that was probably an awful lot of what you were solving first through through drugs and alcohol, and then eventually, really being able to say there's some broken stuff that happened that I tried to solve as a child and I spent and until you get freed up from that or maybe we never totally get freed up from it we could always kind of you know walk with a bit of a limp like Jacob walked with a limp you know the rest of your life with what what are some of the issues but at least you identify them Uh uh-huh yeah well everybody that I've ever felt drawn to and that I could be intimate with emotionally had a family like I did, (laughs) which is to say, I know some people had really happy childhoods. Their parents were happily married and loved and respected each other. And the man didn't have a sense of entitlement and, and domination and where the children were respected for who they were and who they felt, who they loved. And, and, um, but I actually have never been close to a person like that because like, what would we talk about? (laughs) Most of us grew up being told that we were not okay, that we should do better, that that we were definitely esteemed when we brought home good grades, when we kept our weight down, when we, um, when all of our parents' friends were really excited um, to have us around because we had become such good conversationalists. So it was just so, so conditional, and that just leads to such separation from self if you're really esteemed and and sought after when you're doing your performance art 
of uh, excellence and high achievement. So for me, the road to restoration has been finding people for 35 years, just about uh, since I got sober, of uh, who will share their truth with me and say, yeah, I absolutely believe I'm a better person when um, I'm on and when people are approving of the performance and when uh, I look a certain way and this and that. And, um, and when they, with you, do the healing work of breaking through that to our own human um, isness and beingness. And, um, and that's where we um, are most fully alive instead of what we were raised to believe is that we were most fully alive when we looked good. Yeah. So, uh, and when we came across as being really successful. So, I mean, God, it's just such a long, long journey back home to who we were born to be, but it begins with saying what was true, what is true, what we're afraid of, what we've done, uh, what we, what we hate about everything. I mean, I have a best friend, I call her, all the time, and she calls me, and I'll say, I just hate everyone today, and I hate all of life, and this doesn't work for me, and the only thing that I like is, um, you know, Ben and Jerry's New York Super Chunk <laughs> Fudge, and I couldn't just buy a pint, I had to buy two, and they, she will say, oh, I'm so glad you called me too, and, um, and she'll say, but my thing is creme brulee. Now, I've made two creme brulees so far today, and I'm not sharing them. I haven't even told the other people in my family that I've made, you know, and, and then we both get our sense of humor back, and like I've said forever, that laughter is carbonated holiness, but um, we it's hard to get to that laughter when you're faking it. You know, your laughter opens us up to receive truth, which is one of the gifts that you have. You've been able to put this on the page, and we just we just love you for it. I mean, here you've had 18, you've written 18 books as far as I know, and 15 are bestsellers, and all of us who are your fans sit there on the sidelines going, is there another one coming? I was wondering about that because I think, what an incredible pressure. You are oh, a you. beloved person to write to our hearts and we look uh-huh. to get those uh-huh. books because we're wanting to laugh and cry together. And I think that's one uh-huh. of the things you bring into our lives. And I, I just treasure that. Uh-huh. But is it an awful pressure? I'm curious. I mean, you're obviously a born writer. And you wrote this fabulous book, Bird on Bird. I, I, you wrote that bird for writing. Bird, bird yeah. by Bird. Sorry, forgive me for uh-huh. uh, But But uh, I'm just... I'm curious if it weighs on you like an incredible pressure, the next book. And at the same time, I think... The times we're going through, they must be birthing in you an awful lot of copy, a lot to talk about. And there think really about. isn't. I really have not written a word in the last two months, and I'm really focused, like everyone is, on just keeping the patient comfortable one day at a time and try to take care of my community. So um, it's nice of you to say, but it doesn't really work that way for me. And um, I finished a book uh, two months ago. And right when the epidemic was um, becoming global or had been global without a lot of help from our personal government. And um, um, and so I've been just getting to do a copy edit and rewriting and stuff, which is much easier than the creation. And so, but I don't know anything that I would um, feel I I could write about right now that was helpful. You know, that piece I had you look up from the National Geographic on hope. I think I'm just going to repost that today on Facebook because I don't know what I could add to it. And that was before the pandemic. And that was before even the Australian fires. Remember the fires in Australia last year? And those seemed like the end of the world, but those were child's play in terms of duration compared to what we're going through now and the number, the sheer numbers of people who have died. And so, um, But um, back to your original question of, do I feel a lot of pressure? You know, it's funny. I I really don't. I mean, when I'm not writing and when I'm I'm kind of in ploppage right now, um, (laughs) I call it the sacrament of plop because I'm really just trying to come through like everyone is. My grandson's here half the time. My son's here all the time. My husband is in here. We're stuck together. We got married a year ago, and I didn't really plan on 
being quarantined with him. And um, <laughs> and so I'm just kind of dancing with what is now instead of what I might create from it. But the pres- the if I go there, um, that I sh- the shoulds, yeah. um, and the shoulds are S H dash dash. Yeah. <laughs> then I go into I go into shame. Yeah. And you know I I think I said when I was with you in in Toronto that um, I quoted my great Jesuit friend, um, Father Tom Weston, who said the five rules of being an adult are that you must not have anything wrong with you or different about you. Rule two is if you do, you really need to correct it as quickly as possible. Rule three is if you can't correct it or fix it, then you should just pretend you have it <laughs> and that it's not an issue anymore. And the fourth rule is that if you can't um, fix it or, or even pretend that it's not an issue anymore, you should just not show up because it's very painful for the rest of us. And the fifth rule is that if you're going to insist on the right to show up, you should have the decency to be ashamed. And as Henry Nouwen knew, as well as anyone, shame is the great death knell of sensitive people that we believed we were defective because we were told we were defective or we... uh, we weren't good enough. We loved the wrong people. Our needs were too great. Our feelings were too big. And I was raised by an English woman, you know, and, and by the son of missionaries, and feelings weren't a part of the acceptable realms. And so um, for sensitive people, you just live in that shame. And, um, and so if I live in what I could be doing, should be doing, what other people are doing, comparing my insights to other people's outsides, I just go down that rabbit hole. And so just partly to be able to do this radical self-care that I live in, um, I have to just gently release the shoulds and uh, could be doing. I mean, I forgot to learn a new language during the pandemic. I forgot to learn (laughs) piano. I, you know, I forgot to start a food pantry, but I'm doing what I can today. I'm sharing with you. I'm um, sharing with friends who are struggling. I'm going to take my old dog for a nice long walk. I'm going to be gentle and loving with my son and grandson and husband. And um, it's really the best I can do today. And I need to return to basic Henry 101 that that my name is is beloved and um, and that I can live in my name and my truth just for today. Probably tomorrow I'll start learning Spanish, but not today. Oh my goodness, that is so good for my soul, and it's so good for everybody that's listening. I have to tell you, because um, I got beyond the kind of the first few days into this. I did a lot of cleaning. I got at those drawers oh, yeah. and cupboards and everything that really needed. It. And then I threw in the towel and said. That is not what I want to do with this time. But I'm, you know, I get up in the morning, I say, what day is it? Uh, I and, know. And I that know. is always you know, I was trying, crazy. I, I slept in a little bit today because I thought, I don't think I have anything I have to do. And I was awake a couple times a night. And then I thought, wait, little by little, <laughs> it started to filter back. <laughs> oh, it's Thursday. Oh, Karen's going to call. Oh, I better have coffee. Oh, I better brush my teeth. You can't do a podcast if you haven't brushed your teeth. Everyone knows that. <laughs> and, um, you know, but I'm the same way. And I go around and I'll say to my grandson, do you happen to know what day it is? He has a watch that tells him. Um, and so, you know, but here's the thing. We all cleaned like crazy for the first three days. Yeah. And now it's been 70 days. And things are, you know, we've done the bad kitchen drawer. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and now it's about resting. It's about receiving. It's about um, being. It's about praying. It's about pulling for people. I send money to food pantries almost every day, whatever I can. Yeah. And I yeah. tell people, send $5 yes. to the food pantry in Oakland. Boy, yes. they're in trouble. Yeah. And if you ask people to share $5, they might send 20 that's right. So, you know, it's all kind of quantum that I'm in what what actually works, which is what I just said. All those things work, the prayer, the sharing, the giving, the being. Um, it's quantum. 
And if I share it with you, then you're going to probably send money to a very desperate food pantry in Toronto later or um, or somewhere, you know, anywhere. And um, and then you're, you're going to remember, and I'm going to have just reminded myself that prayer really works, yeah. that we say, help, I'm such a disaster. <laughs> and God says, God, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> well put, well put. It's funny because I know you have had such a passion. You're really a, a fighter for the environment. And in some ways, we can't, we have to acknowledge there's this incredible blessing that's happening. The environment is getting yeah. the chance to take a breath. You know, it's, it's uh-huh. being relieved of our our overuse or of our, you know, filling it with constant pollution for just a little breather. And uh, I think that's uh, one of the little moments that we'll look back and say, maybe we learned to do less to our environment or to care for it more. It was a byproduct of this for sure. I loved, uh, there was a line I came across and it might've been in your, in the article that you're going to send out today from National Geographic, but it said, we show up in waders and with with our checkbooks. And I think that's right. I think right now, uh, not everybody can show up with their checkbooks. There are people that are really feeling the pain and they are using, I know. you know, food banks and they've never used them before. But having said that, we can show up and showing up daily. That's, thank you. That's a good reminder. Yeah. 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 Well, that's what Woody Allen said before I turned on him 20 <laughs> years ago when he said um, 90% of 80% of life is just showing up. And I've always said that in the work I've done on grief and stuff is that how can you go to a mother who's lost a child? Well, everybody's afraid to go there. It's just too much pain. There's nothing. And what could we possibly bring? And God says, Jesus said, just show up. Just go there. Maybe get them a glass of water. Yeah. Be present. Be present. Yeah. Don't yeah. be afraid of pain. Actually, it's funny because I was like, I, I did a quick read again of almost everything. And there were so many things in it I loved. But I loved that chapter about death, actually, and about how to walk with people there. And clearly, you've walked with people right through that whole process. And you know it as a privilege and not one to be afraid of, even though we don't want the people we love to die. But even though it sucks. Yeah. You know, there's a chapter in the new book that all truth is paradox. And what you said is true. It's a blessing and an honor to be with somebody who's dying or who's I'm with a person who's 22 year old is dying right now. And it's an honor. It's all that. And it just sucks to use the theological term. It's awful. It shouldn't be that kids get sick. I'm sorry. It, I think it's something we can all agree on, <laughs> yeah. that children and young people should not get sick. And, and yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, they do. And so what do we do? We show up. Um, we cry with them. We feel awful with them. We don't give them any Christian bumper stickers that God doesn't give us more than we can handle. I think God does all the time yeah. give people more than they could possibly there and um and so what do we do we share it you know we share the the pain we share the uh, powerlessness and the um we share the the absolute cluelessness we just sit there with them and we and more than anything i always say this to christians and pastors for the love of God, don't try to cheer people up. It's annoying. <laughs> you know, if it's, it's yeah. annoying. I have a friend who's a uh, 19-year-old son, son just overdosed. Oh. And all I know to do is to listen and not try to cheer her up. And, um, and just to say, God, oh, I just hear you. I just hear you. And I'm here. Yeah. I hear you and I'm here. You quote a line of Ram Dass's, and it's, when all is said and done, we are all just walking each other home. And when we realize yeah. that through all our lives, that's a, that is a privilege, but, it, but you can't shrink from the moments when you're needed most. But I love what you're sharing because it's true. Just, just show up. Don't cheer them up, yeah. but show up. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, what keeps you up at night right now? What are you thinking about? Um, well, I'm a terrible sleeper. I'm a lifelong terrible sleeper. So being awake is what keeps me up at night. And my husband 
literally can't get to get his head to the pillow before he's out. It's so bizarre. <laughs> I feel like he does it just to hurt me. But he he's asleep by 9.30, and I go to sleep at midnight. I usually read for a couple hours. And um, I mean all of it. But as I said earlier, I, I've just learned how to keep the patient comfortable. I do this radical self-care. I get up. Like last night about 11, I got up and got some popcorn because <laughs> I was a little hungry, and I can't sleep if I'm hungry. So got a little popcorn. I went and got the cat and made her keep me company. <laughs> the dog is lying next to the bed. I was warm. I was safe. I know I'm safe. Um, that's really what I teach my Sunday school kids. I'll say you are all I teach them. You're loved and chosen and safe with us and with God, always all evidence to the contrary. So I really just try to keep myself loving companionship. And, um, so that, you know, what keeps me up at night is just really not the pandemic, but how my son is doing, how, how my grandson's doing. He has two families, us and his mother's family and how they all are and how, um, and, uh, you know, in a court, and I'm kind of a hypochondriac, so I'll feel a tiny twinge in my ankle. I sprained it three months ago, but I don't think maybe this is the result maybe I, of that. I think, oh, my God, it's a blood clot, and it's on the move. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to my heart. I'll be dead by morning. Oh. Poor Neil. <laughs> I, you know something? I, I am a bit of the same. I'm, a, I'm an insomniac, so, but I have come to value sometimes I realize that some of my bravest and most uh, creative moments do happen in those darkened hours. It's also the place uh -huh. where fear just thrusts you out of bed and you're just, you know, like I, I, I'm ice cold with fear over whatever uh, that loses all its uh, potency in the morning. But having said that, I also know there's, it, it's a creative time for me. It's, it, it's kind of a time where I can think things through that I can't during the daytime. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, and also, I mean, um, I, I love quiet and stillness, and I love to be alone. And my whole life, I mean, like so much of Henry's work is about the connection to the beloved community um, and also the profound healing and beingness of being alone and I wake up in the middle of light and I might be awake for an hour like you and I say the Jesus prayer and um and I'm I might I might say the Jesus prayer Lord Jesus Christ Son of God have mercy on me uh, a thousand times a day but I'll say it in the night and eventually I fall back to sleep because I remember what it means is it's not just the petition to have mercy on me like like give me a break and make yourself known but it means you do have mercy on me mm -hmm. wow what a concept how can that be yeah um, it so it comforts me and it also does bring me presence and um it does it is a beautiful meditation and it quiets my mind and it takes me to my heart i saw a bumper sticker once that said if you lived in your heart you'd be home now and of course we were in the worst traffic and agitation and roid rage <laughs> and um so and i thought yeah i mean it's true if you live in the heart cave with your higher power and, and your yeah. scared little child your home yeah and so to um take those two hours while neil's asleep as a, a great blessing and then when i wake up in the middle of the night to do the jesus prayer and to get to have that holy sacrament of comfort whether i comfort you with a cup of tea or i comfort me with a bag of popcorn you know it's comfort and comfort is sacred it's interesting on on my car I have a bumper sticker that says love wins and uh -huh. uh, my car's getting really old but I'm reluctant to trade it in because I love my bumper sticker because it I constantly know. speaks to me I mean I can be in a ragingly bad mood and I look at that and I go okay okay it, it just speaks <laughs> right into uh -huh. my heart <laughs> uh -huh. at some yeah. point when I get a new car I'll have to find another love wins bumper sticker for sure tell me about Neil this person walked into your life and it sounds like he didn't walk out once you connected that that's pretty special can you tell me a little bit about how how that's happening in your life 
Well, it's funny because, um, let's see, we've been together coming up on four years now. We've been married just over a year. But the most interesting thing about this, first of all, I've never been married before. But um, I've had long relationships. But as I said, I like to be alone, and I didn't live with them. And so on every level of existence, we've lived together three years now. And um, But the most interesting part, no, kitties, that won't hold you. Oh, God, the kitty's going to try and jump up onto a music stand because Uh-oh. the kitty, I have to go save her one Okay, second. you go save her. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, wait. Here. See, this is solid. Kitty, look, this is a bench that will hold you. <laughs> she sees the music and she goes, ooh, ooh. Um, something new to mess with. So yeah. um, anyway, um, about this time, what is it, May? Mm-hmm. May something. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've already discussed that we don't know what day or date it yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, anyway, we don't. We don't. Whatever, say hypothetically, it's <laughs> yeah. mid May. Yeah. Um, in 2016, uh, um, I did the deepest grief work I can remember doing. And my older brother was here staying with us. His wife had passed, and he was living with us for a bit. And my son was here, and my grandchild. And, um, I was exhausted and depleted by having only taken care of everybody else and feeling taken for granted that everybody's used to me taking care of them and fixing them and supporting them on every level and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and the pain of that existential loneliness, you know, you can be at that deep, Mm. deep grief stricken loneliness with a house full of people and I tried to share it with my brother, John, who's a fundamentalist Christian. And he started in with the bumper stickers, you know, mm. and the Christian bumper stickers. And it was kind of the final straw to not be seen or heard, but to be have somebody just try to fix me and um, in their own on their own terms with their mm-hmm. own vocabulary. And, uh, and I said, I have to go right to second, and I have to be somewhere, which was a lie. And I got in my car, and I drove out to the country, which is all redwoods and creeks and forest. And I screamed and shouted at them all, and mom and dad, that made me this way, that I'm a black belt codependent, and that <laughs> I was depleted and empty and dying. I just felt like I was in soul sickness and soul death. And I shouted and I raged and I hit the steering wheel. I drove for 20 minutes one way and then I drove 20 minutes back. And it wasn't adorable crying. It was I'm red-faced and swollen and my nose is swollen. And my eye, and, um, <laughs> and then I finally pulled over back in my town, but I didn't come home because it wasn't safe because they yeah. just gave me this happy horse pucky. And, um, and I called my mentor of 30 years, my spiritual mentor, who I always call horrible Bonnie. And, um, and she listened, I said, I am done. I am in complete depletion and grief. I don't love, I can't love them. They just suck me and on and on and on. And you know, she did the most radical thing we can do. She listened. And when I was done, I had no voice left and I didn't have a voice for three days. I'd ruined my throat. She said, dearest, this is what we paid for. And she said, you're there. And I was there in the dark night of the soul. I was there in the abyss, which is, as you know, pretty abysmal. And I and she said, thank God. And then we started from there. And she said, you feel you're nobody's priority because you're not your own. And um, we need to do some work now on making you your own priority and doing the self-care and the self-respect and the self-love that is the only way to become a person for others. And um, and we started from there, and we talked for an hour about the action we can take and the things we stop doing, which is, you know, what I said, stop being there for everybody and getting my self-esteem from being of value to others and taking the leftovers and, and um, you know, making sure everybody else was doing okay before I tended to my own human needs and my own spiritual longings. And uh, after about an hour, I was, uh, I was back, you know, the princess was back. And, uh, 
I drove home. My brother was there. He hadn't had a clue, because I don't share that, that I was in desperate need. He had only thought it was like somebody at church who's having a bad day. You know, and mm-hmm. so you just say what you think is true mm-hmm. without hearing what how deeply grief struck and empty they are. And I was fine, and I and I just blew everyone off internally. I released them all to wh- whoever their their higher power, their the way they cope, whether that's with just thinking that you know everything, and you know the op the yeah. what Paul Tillich said that the opposite of of uh, faith isn't doubt but certainty. And I let everybody be certain of their own stuff. And I um, went to people who were safe, who could hear me. And I got this message that I was not my own priority. I was in love. I did leftovers. And so I did this work for three months of becoming my own priority, of falling romantically in love with my own self with buying myself stuff, what I wanted to eat instead of what made everyone else like me more because it's what they like me to bring home from Safeway. And um, I did that work. And then a few months later, I met Neil. I met somebody for whom I became the priority, and he became mine. So um, it all sprang from becoming my own priority, my own beloved and um, so that is, to me, the what I most want to communicate with people when they ask about Neil, because it's funny, I've written this new book, I told you, I think, it comes out next year, but one story has to do with how when you're, um, you've just gotten married, all anyone can ever think to ask, because we're all nervous or shy or, you know, limited people how's married life well we'd already lived together for two years by that point so i'd say well it's good you know (laughs) and um um then um at first i'd be just enraged like god it's such a dumb question then i was on stage in front of a hundred people a thousand people in southern california which is 500 miles from here and um and the first question the interviewer asked me was how's married life and I said, it's fine. And then I told that story mm. about how I got to be married to a really beautiful and brilliant man for whom I got to be the priority because I did not run from the pain and the suffering of having been alone for 62 years and um, alone in more ways than one, not physically alone yeah. always. And yeah. so... What is so that's the story of how Neil and I came to be and now we're in quarantine. So how's married life? Ooh, it's like <laughs> it's like having a reti- a man who's just retired uh. who's kinda of wandering around the house a lot when I'm used to having the house to myself. But you know, he the main thing I had ever sought was someone I felt like talking to all the time. And of course I didn't mean in quarantine yeah. in shelter in place and yeah. um so, but he's brilliant spiritually, psychologically, and so, and I'm, I've learned to take time to say, um, I have to go into our room now, and I'm going to take the cat and close all the doors, and I'm going to take two hours and be by myself and read and maybe take a nap. And he says, okay, great, and then he goes out and gardens. So, you know, I heard when I first got into recovery 34 years ago, ask for what you need and want and celebrate the no. And because I'm the mother and I'm the um, patriarch of this family, people, not just the dog, will follow me around wanting to be with me. (laughs) And I have to say no. Ask for what you need and want and celebrate the no. No, I can't be with you. I have nothing to give. I have to go read the new issue of People magazine. Do the best you can. I'll see you later. Which is what Jesus always says to the disciples, right? They're just always like desperate and whiny and afraid. And he says, go down to the beach and and wait for the next fish to come in and eat. You're all just crazy. I'm going to go off. We'll talk later. And um, he does. And then he goes and he he seeks quiet and rest and time with his father. And and then when he can... um, he comes back to them. 
I find all of that just absolutely profound what you just shared because it really speaks to my heart about you know knowing what you need finding what you need being real with what you need um, uh-huh. that's quite quite the story I'm really grateful you you shared that um, <laughs> you are a hearty meal, my friend. You are always full of stuff that's just delicious. And, and speaking of the delicious, uh, in this book, I love the chapter on, was it bittersweet or bitter truth? I was so grateful somebody said that dark chocolate is not not great. <laughs> anyway, I just I just have to say that. because No, there's a whole chapter. It's only one sentence, I think. I know. But it says <laughs> I love that it. it was never supposed to be considered an edible like people have always given because they know i love chocolate (laughs) that really it's my favorite thing about life after jesus it goes Uh jesus and then chocolate um and then the animals um that they give me like 80 percent cacao chocolate and i think oh i'll keep it in case one of the tables gets wobbly (laughs) because this would fit perfectly under the table and then you could um shore it up but, um, yeah, no, I, I set out to write every single thing I knew to be true, really for my um, grandson and niece, you know, uh-huh. that, yeah. that and, and that you get to say what's true. And, uh, I mean, when people give me this expensive, delicious chocolate, I never say, ooh, ooh, um, yeah, gross. But, um, actually, I just put it in the gift shop, and I, I re-gift it to people that do, like, 75% cacao. I personally like M&M's. I know yeah. I'm a Philistine. <laughs> and, and Hershey Kisses. As I, as I and read, Hershey yeah, Kisses. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. in your camp. I'm in your camp for sure. There's another little thing that I just find so charming. And it is, in a way, your love of children. The way you relate to children. I, I see it in your Sunday school class. And you shared a little bit about that. But as I was reading this book, I love the fact that you were teaching children how to write. And I just... It was just contagious. It was just, it was darling. Quite frankly, it was just darling as far as I was concerned. Um, there's something in you, and you know, here we're going, I, I may be taking you backwards into, you know, caring for everybody else but yourself, but but there is something in you that just seems to awaken to children in a really special way. I really, I don't know, it's funny because I don't like to brag about myself but children have always loved me and gravitated towards me. And when I lived in this funny hippie community that actually my first novel, which is called Hard Laughter, was based in Bolinas, this hippie artist colony on the coast about half hour from where I am now, I was like the Pied Piper. And I, <laughs> I couldn't, it was always so odd and kids would follow me around and um, and want to be with me. And I think it's partly just because I do believe in doing real. I love real. I love, and I listen. And it's mostly because I was such a terrified child. I know what it feels like to be a kid. It's not like it's portrayed in the movies or the commercials. It's not um, carefree, and it's it's just the opposite. My parents had an unhappy marriage, and that I was very, very strange and different-looking, I had this very, very different crazy hair and these huge goggly green eyes, and I was so amazed, so skinny. And um, and it, back in the 50s and early 60s, it was so weird because grown-ups would feel that it was fine to comment on how a child that wasn't theirs looked, you know, and strangers would say, oh, don't you ever feed her? You know, uh-huh. like that was comical. Uh-huh. It's like, it's so bizarre, but so I understand what it is to um, to feel, you know, the the ultimate statement is that it's a stranger in the strange land, and um, so um, I get it. I don't pretend that I don't. I don't try to get them to feel more comfortable here than they feel, yeah. which is that everyone feels. I felt, and I, I wonder if you did, I felt like um, I was the only earthling and that I was on this Martian, mm. um, you know, test pad, test testing lab where they were um, watching my every move to see how I reacted so I couldn't make any mistakes, one false move and, and the jig was up. Or I felt like I was the only Martian and I'd been put, but at any rate, I felt like I, 
I didn't have an owner's manual. I felt like, and the horrible thing is I felt like everyone else did. I felt like I must have had the measles that day in second grade when they gave everybody the instructions on how to feel okay here and part of and um, and have decent self-esteem. I never did. I spent my childhood dancing as fast as I could to try to fit in and to pass. And um, And so with kids, I just... I'm aware of that. I'm aware of just how scary and weird it is here, how desperately they try to help their parents be okay, and you know, with no hope of that happening, with a you know, 50-pound person trying to help two grown-ups um, be more decent to each other. And so, uh, I, and so anyway, when our church, um, we moved when my son was about five, and and um, um, I just started this Sunday school so that he would want to be there more because up until five, I'd always just bring him uh, stuff to do like crayons and, and markers and, you know, little baggies of Cheerios. And then at five, I just decided I would start a, a little, a class for him, a place for him to be where he would be learning also and um, where he would be having fun, making crafts, but finding out about Jesus and so I started this Sunday school, and, and um, I was good at it. It was so weird. I hadn't meant to be or planned to be, or I hadn't even actually planned on teaching it. And I've mostly um, taught it myself for, what's it been, 31 years now? Uh, not 31, 26 years now. So... Um, and I love it, and it drives me crazy sometimes. And I try—I have a partner, um, Bonnie, who I share it with, so that every other week I get to stay in service for the sermon and the the rest of the church and the singing and the in the prayers of the people because we we take the kids out halfway through. Um, because I think it's also great for kids to learn to sit there quietly, and we have a very integrated intergenerational church of about 30 people and it's good for kids to learn to sit quietly and I want them to learn how great and fun and trippy Sunday school can be so um, yeah I write about them a lot they just say such incredible things in fact I completely plagiarized them um, about six months ago this is one of the chapters in the book when we were I I was trying to write about the center of our being which is our soul and um um, why we're here, you know, like that great Meister Eckhart quote from the 14th century that if um, the soul could know God without the world, God would have never created the world, you know. And so um, I was talking to them about the soul. I said, how do you imagine it? You know, and they said the most beautiful stuff that one of them said, um, I think a boy, a 14-year-old boy, they're all different ages. There might be three kids a week is typical, and they might be a 14-year-old and an 8-year-old, and my grandson, who's 10 and a half, um, one of them said, the boy, the older, oldest boy said, I think it's like a tiny silver snow globe inside of us. I thought that was so beautiful, a silver glittery snow globe. And the girl, who was about not even 8, said, I think it's like Pikachu. <laughs> you know, from Pokemon. And then she said, kind of a kitty bunny little being. And I thought that's the best definition of soul I ever heard. And um, so uh, they just blow me away. They make me laugh. They make me cry. I went to them the day after the massacre at Newport at uh, Sandy Hook. I go to them after catastrophes now. And I, Mm. I, uh, I listen. I cry with them. I don't have answers with them, and uh, I feed them. It's it's interesting because I, I find that when you share some of those moments that you have with children, it always really touches me. It always, there's something so breathtakingly honest about it, you know, and, and there's something so freeing. I'm glad you don't make it up, that you don't, uh, that you understand their fears. I think when you do that, I feel like, oh, you understand my fears, too, and I, I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Well, also, they're so exposed. They don't have all the games and the spackle and the founda- the yeah. fancy Chanel foundation to cover it all up with. You know, they're really pretty transparent. And so, you know, one thing I love about them is that they love all the cranky, bratty people in the Bible 
um, because they know that's who we really are, and that um, that we're not all that we're not Joseph. You know, mm. we're not. We're we're. Um, we might be the brothers that actually threw him in the well because we're jealous. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And we're and we're Benjamin. They're, we're, they know we're both. Yeah. We're the innocent baby in the family, and um, who had something precious torn away from him, including his father's wholeness when Joseph was stolen from the family. Yeah. And um, but they also love Jonah because he's such a brat. <laughs> and because he only wants him and his people to be taken care of by God, he's just so livid when it turns out that God has come to actually take care of everyone, to welcome the, everyone back. The prodigal son, they love the older brother because he's such a brat, you know. <laughs> he's going to sit there on the step outside the banquet. He is not going to go in and have food and joy and companionship because he's so bitter that he's been the perfect boy all along. And yet here's the dad feeding the boy who, the young, the son who wrecked it all, who behaved badly, who abandoned, you know, and the father just says, this is the happiest day of my life. And so the brother just sits out there with his, I picture him with his arms crossed, crying, oh, this is so unfair. And so my kids love him. <laughs> and I do too. Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think uh, what we love so much about you is your honesty about who you are and when you feel mad and what's going on in your head. And it, it just draws us in. And at the same time, you say, grace bats last. You really... You have a, a center in God that just really, you know, challenges me. Um, I'm so glad. I, you know, I remember I reached out to you way, way back going, has Henry Nowen ever influenced you? Just because you were such an influence on me. And I thought, she's got to have read Henry Nowen just because of the uh. kinds of things I was reading from you. But I will say this right now. I will say thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me your time today for everything. There's oh, so much Karen, good stuff really, in this. Oh, really, really been lovely. I probably got more out of it than you did. <laughs> You're sweet to say that. Thank you. We love you. We're looking forward to the next book. But I go back and I read the treasures that I've already got. And they are that. I, I thank you thank so much. Thank you. Have a beautiful, blessed day and just try to keep the patient comfortable and give her delicious treats. I am about to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich oh, as my you. sacrament. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Karen, take, take care. care. I hope I hope you got it all. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I hope you got as much out of this chat with Anne Lamott as I did. As well, you'll find links in the show notes for our website, and any content, resources, or books discussed in this episode. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you take time to give it a stellar review or a thumbs up or even share it with your friends and family. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.